Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. There we go. Everybody's on their best now. Good, good, good. All right. So we're going to... Have you noticed something? And I, and I probably should have noticed it before, but I just noticed it is that John devotes an entire chapter to this encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. Isn't that kind of interesting? What would you make of that? There's some importance to that, isn't it? And because Jesus had many encounters with uh, many people, and in particular women, you know, men, women, that sort of thing. So what what other significance might this story be? for us today. Because she wasn't just any woman, right? So there, was some, there was something unique about her? Yeah, yeah Brenda? Some of the angriest, most difficult arguments are between people who should be very close. She's saying that sometimes some of the most difficult arguments are between people that should be close. Whether that be families, or races or countries. Yes, yes. The Samaritans and the Jews, they had differences in belief, but they came from the same origin. Yeah. They should have been working together. You would think, right, and kind of that rolls that way in religions, and it rolls that way in families, and it rolls that way in common interests. You know, it is kind of one of those things that sometimes we live a bit under a maybe a a bit of an ideal perspective that we think, well, if we can just find common ground, if we can just figure out where we're compatible, then we'll all get along. (laughs) And what's interesting about that is, anyway, is that initially that's true. Initially, we might have the same goal. We might come from the same background. We might have the same aspirations, even the same religion. But after a while we find ways to divide ourselves. And we divide ourselves into terms of who's right and who's wrong and who's better and who's worst and who's smarter and whose theology is the best and whose isn't and and all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like inevitability. And then our answer to it is we say, well, I'm just going to go away from you and find somebody that thinks like I do, right? And I go and I look for my next compatible group, thinking that, there must be another compatible group out there somewhere. And I just didn't find it this time. And the inevitable occurs. And so you, you look at Jesus, he kind of cuts through all of that, doesn't he? In the sense that he, he goes after the heart. He goes after the relationship. And he creates it. He establishes it. And then what he does is he changes it. And I think that's part of the significance, at least for me, as we're working through this, uh, through this chapter. Yeah, Keith. Well, this is a big turning point, really, in the, for the gospel, where it's actually showing that Jesus did not come for the Jews only. Yes, that's this correct. Is showing, so what better to do that than show basically to the Jews the worst hate the enemy? That's correct, yeah. Show he is for all, because that's what actually wrapping this up. So he's actually looking at, I'm bringing him for all, not just the Jews. That's correct. And, and he was there for the Jews, so it wasn't like exclusive of the Jews. But, but it, sometimes we get a little too possessive of Jesus. 
And we think that, well, he's my Jesus, and so then he's just there for me and for the people that I like. And then what happens is he starts to tell me things like, well, you have to go and share me with other people. And I'm thinking, yeah, as long as I like them, I'll be happy to do that. (laughs) Or as long as they receive me in a gracious way, then I'll be happy to do that. But that's what's so interesting about this story is that, and we're going to see it uh, here at the very beginning, is the disciples have missed all this. Where were they when all of this is happening? They went into town to buy food, you know, and they're hanging around out there in, in town. And so then, so let's pick it up right here with our verses, all right? Just then his disciples came back, all right? So see, there's been all this stuff, is all this great stuff's been going on, and they're in town getting the groceries, all right? But I love this first part. Just then his disciples came back, They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Now, why do you think they didn't ask that? They didn't want to to hear about it, did they? Right? And plus, I think they're starting to get a little glimpse of what Jesus's ministry is about. That it isn't just going to the normal in the sense of the people that we would have expected. They're kind of getting a little different taste of what this ministry is about. So the woman left her water jar, which is kind of interesting. That was the reason she came to the well in the first place, right? She left her water jar and she went away into town and said to the people who were Samaritan like she was, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, we've been talking uh, quite a bit about Jesus's approach with the woman. Because not only was she a woman, not only was she a Samaritan, but she was also a person whose lifestyle would have been uh, called or named sinful at best in terms of not just the society that she was a part of, but also, frankly, even the scriptures. The Bible would have been pretty clear about the the lifestyle choices that she was making, right? And she was well aware of that, as was Jesus, as was everybody in town. Everybody in town knew that she had lived with a number of men, and, and, uh, and the guy that she was living with currently wasn't, wasn't her husband as well. And so, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about that in the sense that Jesus didn't soft pedal that. Jesus didn't just say, well, you know, uh, what you're doing in your life doesn't matter. Jesus addressed what you're doing in your life. He called it out in some sense. Now, you know, I, I know that sometimes we might be uncomfortable with using that terminology or using that verb, uh, verb of uh, Jesus calling out somebody. But basically, what is he doing? He's speaking the truth about that individual, about that person. But the reason he's doing it is not to make himself look good. He's already good enough, right? He's doing it because he knows what she does not yet know. And that is the choices that she's making in her life are moving her away from peace with God. That's why he's doing it. And so by pointing out or by extending the truth to her, 
what he's actually doing is creating a, a climate, a, a receptivity, if you will, in which then she will be drawn to him. And notice that's exactly what happens. Is that not only is she touched by the way in which Jesus speaks the truth and the fact that he speaks the truth. What does she do? She leaves the reason that she came, right, which was the water, and goes and does what? She goes and tells all her friends, come and see the guy that told me everything that I did. Could this be the Christ? And so then their curiosity is stirred up and do and what? They want to come see for themselves as well. So verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples, I love this, they were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has somebody brought him something to eat? Don't you love this? All the, uh, it's just, it's absolutely incredible how literal everybody is when Jesus first meets them. Okay, we have the water thing, we have the life thing, we have the, uh, now we have the food thing. And it's like, Jesus, you know, at some point you just wonder, Lord, how long am I going to have to be here doing this? And maybe he was kind of grateful that his uh, ministry with them was only three years. Maybe that's, you know, maybe, maybe that was the extent of it. Moses lasted 40 years. There was no way Jesus was going to do that. So they, they said, has anyone brought him something to eat? And then Jesus turns it, and he takes it from talking about physical food and physical eating. He takes it to the different plane, and the different plane is spiritual food. So he says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. So what is Jesus saying is the food. The spiritual food that he's talking about here is what? What's he say? It's doing, yeah, it's obedience. It's, it's doing the will that he was called to do, which then by extension, what? We are called to do. And we're reminded of that in, later in John. We'll see this in John 6 where he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was always about doing his Father's will. There wasn't ever a question about it in terms of his own will, or in particular the will of other people who wanted to define what his life and ministry was going to be about. And, and we see that not only the effort to do that, we see that not only in terms of those who opposed him, it was also the people that were closest to him. Can you think of an example where his own disciples sought to impose their will on what Jesus was about as opposed to what Jesus said his will is about. Yeah, Tim. 
Uh, do you want us to pray to send fire and brimstone to burn that town that rejected you? So that's a good example of you know, people aren't, the people aren't listening to Jesus. They're, they're just kind of messing around and not paying attention to Jesus. Just let that be, you know, a lesson for you in church, okay? Um, <laughs> not, you know, saying anything about that. But, you know, if you're tempted to pull out your cell phone in church and... <laughs> And you might get a shock of some kind, you know, who knows where that might come from, right? Not looking at anybody in particular, of course, yes. But so what is, what are, what is actually James and John? What, what is it they go to Jesus and they say, would you like for us to call down a little fire from heaven to get people's attention? Uh, what about when Jesus announced to his disciples that he was going to suffer and die? What was Peter's response? Yeah, and he did, Right kind of the over my dead body, you're not going to do that. See, and, and so it, it, it's kind of a human thing. I mean, isn't it when, when you love somebody and when you care about somebody and you're attached to what they're doing and you see that what they're doing is really good, you don't want it to end, right? I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? And so that was the deal with Jesus' disciples was they, they didn't want it to go the way that Jesus knew it would and the way that God had it planned. And so even in those situations, Jesus had to, had to put the boundary up. He had to really say to them, no, I'm about doing my Father's will. But notice how the will is linked. The will is linked to spreading the gospel to other people. And that's what he's talking about here when he says uh, that, that the, I'm going to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And he's doing it in the context of the Samaritans coming to him. That's what's so astonishing about this, is that the townspeople now are coming to Jesus on the basis of what the woman at the well had said to them. All her friends are coming. And presumably these would have been friends that maybe would run with her and maybe in terms of the same lifestyle. Maybe everything that would have been offensive to a Jew, a good Jew, or for that matter, a good Christian, or for that matter, a good Lutheran. Everything was what all these people are now coming. And Jesus says when they come, the field, the harvest is ripe. He's linking the two together. So if you look at the two verses that are at the bottom of your, uh, of your outline, it'll sort of connect the dots there. The first one I mentioned in the sermon. This is good and it is pleasing in sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And then in Luke 10... He said to them, Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of what? Is that good news? Is the world full of wolves today? How do you respond to wolves? How do you respond to wolves? Run away from them? You know, it's kind of interesting if you're jogging out in Frisco, you might encounter a coyote. That's probably pretty close to a wolf, maybe. You know? Or a bobcat. That's not so close to the wolf, but kind of the same idea. So what does that tell you 
about the way Jesus looks at you and me and the mission that he calls us to do. Kind of intimidating, isn't it? Kind of over our heads, isn't it? Kind of maybe we don't have a lot going for us, even though we might. You know, a sheep is pretty tasty to a wolf. But ultimately, who do you have to trust then? The shepherd. See, and that's his point, is that I am sending you out, but the task will not be easy. It may, in fact, look to you like nothing is happening because the wolves seem to have the upper hand over the sheep. Right? Yeah, Carl. And today's, in our culture today, the wolves are overpopulating and we are allowing them to do it. We need to be more doing what Jesus is saying and stand up for our principles and not give up. And, and part of that is sharing the gospel. You know, it's not, it's not only just standing up for what we believe in terms of, you know, the country and culture. I mean, those things are important. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about sharing the gospel. The struggle, I think, for a lot of people is that it, it kind of looks like the gospel isn't working. Because we look around for the, the, the evidence of it. We look around for the marks of it. And we kind of think, well, if the gospel is doing its work, then people ought to love each other more, right? People ought to get along better. People ought to be more forgiving. People ought to be able to come together and overlook their differences and be able to work on something together, right? If the gospel was doing its work. And that's where I think the life of faith is such that you trust and believe that God's promises do not return void. That's what he says that the power of the Holy Spirit is working, but that sometimes the timing and maybe perhaps the, the sequence in which those things show up is way beyond our appreciation for how that could be. And so even when it seems that the wolves are winning, he says, no, you go out and you do my bidding. And see, that was why it was so tempting, and Keith pointed this out, that's why it was so tempting for Peter to draw his sword, right? Because here they're coming to arrest him. Well, that couldn't possibly be part of God's will. That couldn't possibly be. How could that work? The wolves are winning. And Jesus said, put your sword away. That, in fact, the death was the essential critical piece to what the sheep were to be about. So he goes, into this, uh, he goes into this thing about the harvest. Now, this would have been quite shocking and a bit disturbing to these good Jewish guys who had grown up their whole life with a bias against Samaritans. They were a product of their own religious upbringing. Does it surprise you that in religious training, somebody would have grown up with bias? <laughs> No. And so you wonder about bias itself. Is bias good or is bias evil? It's just what it is, right? Bias is bias. All right, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. In what way could bias be good for us? What, what gift might it bring or what might it provide for us that would actually be beneficial? Bias. 
What is bias, by the way? What, how would we define that? Discernment. Hmm? Discernment. It's, it's kind of a which way do you lean kind of idea. Okay. What's the, I like to use the word lens. It's, it's a little bit of what's the lens that you use to make sense of something? Or what's the, what's the filter that you use to filter things in and filter things out and be able to say, okay, that's good. That's not good. This is, you know, of, of Christ, of not of Christ. Okay. I, that's the way I use it. So in that sense, you could say that one's bias could be a protective thing, could it not? Yeah, because you're looking at somebody's teaching, you're listening to somebody's preaching, you're, you're, you're reading a book, you're, you're interacting with, somebody that, with something that somebody else wrote. And you look at it not through a blank slate, but you look at it through the lens or the bias that you bring to the table in terms of how you interpret it and what you do with it. That's the good use of bias. Now, in what way might bias be of harm and maybe in particular spiritual harm? You forget about the big picture. You forget about the big picture. In what sense, Gretchen? And being biased. I mean, you can be biased. There's so many religions and so many things of like what I've been through in my own life. Mm -hmm. The one common denominator is love and God. Okay. And to be biased, maybe we should, uh, this is just for me, mm -hmm. understanding other people and how they were raised and what they believe. Okay. But the, but the final point in all of this is God and so the idea would be that it could be harmful. I'm hoping, I hope I'm saying it right here. That it could be harmful in the sense that I would use that to treat people in a disparaging way. That I would look at somebody and say, because of my bias, that person is unsalvageable. That person is unlovable. There's no way in a million years that person could be in heaven because look at all the things that person represents or all the things that person has ever done. There's probably going to be a lot of us that when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked about who's there. <laughs> and what will be really amazing is if people look at you and say, I'm shocked you're there. <laughs> yeah. Because again, we all sort of bring that, don't we bring that lens to the table a little bit, don't we? We kind of we say, well, based on this and the lens that I look at your life with, right, then I make judgments about whether or not you're lovable. And you know, just because somebody is not lovable to me doesn't mean they're not lovable to God, <laughs> right? And that includes me. Because some days we all have bad days, right? Yeah. Well, our lens always has that plank in it. Our lens has that plank in it. Like any particular plank that you're talking about here? Well, I don't want to specify mine. That plank, yes. <laughs> yes, let's hear more about your plank, yes. Or why don't you just talk and we will all identify your plank for you. How about that? Yes, all right. Well, it would take too long. There probably would be, yeah. But what, so what do you say more about what you mean by that? When you talk about the lens that we view other people through, yeah. it's still filtered with what we think. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not seeing them through God's eyes, yeah. through Jesus' eyes, that's right. it's through ours. That's correct. So that's why I was saying we're looking through our lens, but we haven't taken the plank out of our lens mm -hmm. before we're looking at them. Yeah. And so that is why I would think... I think this, is that at the end of the day, the thing that shapes the lens needs to be God's word. 
And, and, and in some sense, where we always have to be real cautious is that we're actually representing God's word as God's word as opposed to representing it in terms of my interpretation of God's word. And so then, therefore, I change the nature of the word because I'm imposing my own bias into the word. And that's where, you know, I think the value of being in a Bible study, the value of being in study, the, 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 the value of, of sitting down with other Christians and, and really hammering through the word is of great value. Because it's real easy to deceive ourselves when we're by ourselves. Right? I mean, I can read the Bible and kind of go, oh, this is what it says and this is what I think. And I'm, who am I convincing if I'm by myself? Myself, and I'm very good at convincing myself, right? As all of us would be. But when we sit down with two or three, and we're really, you know, swords sharpened swords in terms of our, of our theology and in terms of our understanding of what the Bible's talking about, that's where you get really a, 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 a more clear sense of is this what the Bible is saying or is this just what I want the Bible to say and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So bias, you know, it's not, it's not good or evil, but it certainly is powerful. And we should not take it for granted or just assume that, that none of us has it. We all have it. And some of it's based on our experience. Some of it's based on what we think is right and wrong. Some of it's based on how we, how we grew up. It's all those kinds of things. And it's a good idea to, to routinely, I think, examine where your bias is coming from. So here we have it's the scene. They're in this town, near this town, near the well. The disciples are saying, oh boy, we're really hungry and Jesus needs something too. And so then, then all these Samaritans are starting to come toward Jesus. And the disciples are seeing that and they don't know what to do with it. And Jesus says, here's the harvest. And he says, I'm sending you out to reap a harvest for which you did not labor. Now that is very interesting. Because if the disciples' job at that moment was to receive the Samaritans, who was it that had sown the seed of the gospel with the Samaritans? Jesus had, right? So Jesus had done the work of the sowing, and here come all these people who are now the harvest, and Jesus is saying, you're the reapers. And as the reapers, what does that mean? You are to welcome them. You are to gather them in. And the disciples are probably thinking we should have stayed in town with uh, the food because <laughs> we don't know what we're doing here. Jesus is really putting one on us. But isn't that the way that works? Sometimes the sowing that takes place was years ago. Somebody got the gospel to somebody else, planted the seed, and then may have even walked away thinking nothing happened. Right? It's a little bit like maybe what happens at baptism. A little baby gets baptized, and then you think, well, that's just the same kid as ever. <laughs> Hadn't changed a bit. But the gospel was planted in that moment, even as an infant when that little kid didn't know anything. And way later... Somebody else comes along, and there you have somebody who's now being the harvest, being reaped, if you will. Have anybody had that experience before? 
where somebody who had come to faith, or at least the seed of faith was planted like a long time ago, and then you encounter them, and it's like they have, they have faith, and you now are in a position to help that faith be nurtured and to help that faith grow and mature. But the fact that the faith is already there was the result of somebody else doing the reaping or doing the sowing so many years before. So see, don't let it, don't let it discourage you if you share God's blessing or the good news or, or salvation or, the, or a Bible story or whatever it is. Don't, don't look at that as if you're doing that should result in some sort of immediate kind of, you know, the heavens open and a light comes down and then we have heavenly music and the person says, I'm going to go be a missionary forever and look what, how you affected me. All right, it, that may happen. And if it does, praise God. But most of the time you're going to get, oh no, oh no, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Oh no. And, and that's okay. Because there's probably going to be somebody else that comes along in that person's life and, and tickles that a little bit. See, the growth of faith is a maturing process, a journey, if you will. That, and that's a great word to use, is journey. And that means there's a lot that can happen along the way. Somebody had their hand up. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm reading this book, How to Share Jesus. How to Share Jesus. You're reading a book on how to share Jesus. Awesome. Oh, without fear, even better. Yeah. Um, the guy that, that wrote the book was a mafia type guy. Anyway, um, he had a guy that just kept witnessing to him, witnessing to him, and it took years. But he, you know, he's now totally changed and just a big uh, follower and, and uh, mm -hmm. evangelist trying to you know share people. But he was saying that you know you just got to. It took so many times yeah. for him yeah. before he finally got it. Okay. So it tells you about the idea of um, perseverance. It also says a lot about walking with somebody. Okay? You're walking with somebody. And if you think of it as we're walking along and we're having this conversation, and sometimes either one of us has the capacity in that moment to say something outrageous or just stupid, right? But what do you do? Do you say, oh, I'm done with you? There's no hope for you. No. What do you do? You just keep walking with the person, right? And I guess what I'm trying to say is that relationships take time, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, is a relationship with him. But somewhere along the line, the gospel got shared, as it did here. And, and the reality is, is that sometimes the person that received the gospel might be, in fact, someone that you're opposed to. That you think, oh, I'm so uncomfortable around that person, there's no way in a million years that I could ever be, that I could be the reaper of that harvest. And we sort of insist that people change before we're willing to be the reapers of the harvest. It, it, that isn't how it works. And so the idea is to be prepared for that, but some things you can't be prepared for, you still have to do what? You still welcome you still welcome. You still welcome. Yeah, Carl. Share a point that you just brought up, brought up about harvesting. Yeah. On a very evangelism call many years ago, this was just such a memorable moment in my life. Uh -huh. We were talking with a young lady and asked her if she knew for sure if she would go into heaven. Mm -hmm. And she said, 
I don't. I don't think so. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Uh huh. So, well, do you believe in Jesus? She says, Oh, I've always believed in Jesus mm -hmm. as my Savior. I said, Oh. So, well, John six forty seven says, He who believes in Jesus Christ already has eternal life. Yeah. And she went, Wow! <laughs> what a memorable moment. Carl, I didn't quite catch that part. Can you just? Gonna... I underdid it. She was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, really, actually, that's pretty cool because the already is the nice assurance, isn't it? It's just we're not there yet. So it, when you're not there yet, you're probably subject to a few, a few doubts, you know, a few times in life when things go south and you think, well, wait a minute, if I'm already there, then those things ought not to happen. Well, those things happen because that's the world we live in. But we hang on to and, in fact, are strengthened by the fact that we already have it. We already have it. And that, see, that's kind of what, that's what gets us through. It gets us through even the times when we're doubting that we already have it, right? But that's just, that's just human to do that. But that's why, again, you go back to the Word, you keep going back to the Word, keep going back to the Word. And it's not that we shouldn't listen to things of the world, it's just don't, don't put all your eggs in the world's basket because the world is all about what have you done lately? In what way has your effort been continuous? And in what way have you been sincere in what you've been doing? That's what the world is about. But that's not what God's about. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And look what happened. He stayed there, what? Two days extra. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. What's happened here is not simply a change in one person's life. Now we have societal change, at least in that town. Kind of a beautiful thing, is it not? So, it kind of caused me to sort of ask the question, do you think that after that, her lifestyle changed as a result of this encounter with Jesus? And the reality is we don't know. See, we, we would assume so, but we don't, it, the story doesn't say it did. And that's what makes this story different from, let's say, the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man. <laughs> All right. Yeah, poor guy. He's probably, he's probably six foot four, but, you know. Um, uh, but maybe in the land of the Nephilim, that was little. But what, how did Zacchaeus respond to being uh, saved in some sense with Jesus? How, what did he say he was going to do? Because he was a tax collector, and so what is it? How did tax collectors make their wealth? Overcharging. Yeah, overcharging, ripping people off, taking their money. I mean, they were hated in the town, that, in the place where they lived. And so what did he say? He said, anybody that I've ripped off, I'm going to do what? I'm going to return to them, like, probably fourfold or some, you know, some multiplier is what he, what he said. So there, we look at that and we go, oh, yeah, that's a great example of not only did somebody come to faith, but, but, their, but their lifestyle changed. They, they had a full turnaround 
And so I guess I'm just sort of asking that question here because it's not there in the story of the woman at the well. What do you think? You think her life turned around? I think it did. I think she started a Bible study. Yes! Back to town and told people. Yeah. So now there was a group. A yes. Group that could get together. A yes. Learn. Yes. She wasn't alone anymore. She wasn't alone anymore because, and Bob had pointed this out like, how many weeks ago did we first start this chapter out? Remember? <laughs> um, but that the fact that she was coming in the middle of the day suggested what, Bob? Well, that she was shunned basically by the people of the village. Yeah that even though they were Samaritan and we have the same nationality and all those things, same religion, we don't like it either what you're doing. So we will shun you and where we all come to the well in the morning or in the evening to get our water, you're going to have to end up doing it in the middle of the day. That's right. Quick question in that regard. Um, in the, uh, somewhere, I forget where specifically in the, one of the Gospels, but uh, they bring a woman committed adultery and they said we should stone this woman should we not but she's been with five other men and she, they were they just were, like why was she like why wasn't she being dragged out and being asked like should we stone her versus like that other because of where it took place where that story took place was the pharisees and the sadducees and the scribes were all nearby so all the all the most judgmental people and in that story, they didn't give a rip about her. They did, and they didn't care about the fact that in order to commit adultery, you have to have another person involved. <laughs> and they didn't care about that either. They, they didn't drag the guy out, did they? No. So that, that whole thing was all about sticking it to Jesus and, and making Jesus look bad and lose face in the sight of the people. And then people would stop following him and then he would be marginalized. Okay, so that's, that's the reason why. Okay? So, um, where was I? I forgot where I was. Oh, yeah, okay. So, we, let's, let's assume that her life changed. Did the life of the townspeople change, too? We hope so. But remember, what were the circumstances that this woman found herself in that would have promoted the idea of being a prostitute in the first place? Widow? Could possibly have been a widow with no means of support. And so if in fact, and it's presumed, that the townspeople's lives would have changed as well, then somehow she would have had to have had some way to financially support herself other than by means of prostitution. Now again, lots of conjecture. Don't know. It's kind of troubling, and maybe that's okay. If we think in terms of the idea that if we're going to share the gospel with people and that that involves a life change for them, then does that not also mean that somehow we might need to be involved after the conversion to help support that person in such a way that they don't end up having to go back into that very same lifestyle in order to survive? Does that make sense? And so, you know, maybe there's a little extra thought that we have to give to this idea of what does it mean to share the gospel 
and not simply be content with, oh, I shared the gospel and I'm sure someone's saved and they'll probably be in heaven someday. <laughs> and then I go my merry way and I don't have any sort of sense of maybe responsibility and that might be too strong of a word, but any sense of what's the next connection and what's the next opportunity. Okay, make sense? Like yeah, like ripples in the water. The big splash is coming to know Jesus, right? But then there's more that comes after that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Max. Yeah, the early church, you know, it was founded on the uh, people met at homes, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was the way the Lord wanted his church to be. He really didn't want the huge cathedrals like we have now and everything because people got away from that helping each other. It was designed to initially be in a home and you developed a group of really close fellow Christians and you helped each other no matter what. So yeah. if you needed money, I would give you money. If mm -hmm. you needed food or you needed a job, we would help you find a job. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the challenge of the large churches today. You know, mm -hmm. is that we've lost that initially. We can. I mean, sometimes we can get quite proud of what we've built. And, and not, I wouldn't shame us for building big. I wouldn't do that. I mean, we've got pretty big here, all right? But I think there is a tendency in, in large places to be quite pleased with how well we have attracted people and then not thinking so much about, uh, well, what happens after that. So to think in terms of, having an impact on the community in which you're a part of that, maybe in some sort of revitalization or maybe in some sort of helping people in need and, and those kinds of things. So there's always that possibility. Now, the flip side is, and, and this kind of comes more out of my own personal experience of having served little bitty churches. So, you know, kind of an ironic thing for me in my uh, pastoral life is to go from serving a church out of the seminary that worshiped 35 Okay, initially. And then now it's worshiping like 800. So it's like, you know, how did that happen, right? But sometimes what happens is when you're in a very tiny place, you, you de-emphasize what can be done because you say we're too small. There's too few of us. We don't have the budget for it. We just don't have the facility for it. Oh, if only we had the facility, then we could do it. So everybody at any stage of size there's always a potential to be able to marginalize what God can do. And so the temptation is, you know, it's pretty uh, equal opportunity temptation here, right? Yeah. I think those are, those are partially same stereotypes. It's really easy to throw rocks at, we'll say, big churches. Yeah, easy because, to throw rocks at big because, churches. Because probably many people have walked into a big church and worshiped one day and walked out and nobody talked to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's not the only experience that's going on. Right. There are other people that are being talked to mm -hmm. and that are getting connected. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we need to be really careful about stereotypes. I think that Satan uses them to divide us. Yeah, again, the bias can form yeah. a stereotype. It certainly, it certainly can. You, you know what's kind of a kind of an ironic thing? is that everybody compares themselves to somebody else. So when I was serving a little bitty church that uh, worshiped 35, guess who we compared ourselves to? The church in town that worshiped 100. 
Well, then when we got up to 150, who did we compare ourselves to? The church that worshiped 300. I mean, you know, it, to, some, to some degree, I think there's a little bit of asp- aspiring, okay? You look and you say, oh, what can God do? That kind of thing. But there's also that sort of diminishment of what you bring to the table in the state that you're in. And we think, oh, if only I was, and then fill in the blank, then I can do great things for God. If only I would win the lottery, then I could do great things for God, right? Anybody thought that before? (laughs) Yeah, well, we all think it. And some of you were honest enough to raise your hands, right? (laughs) Yeah, so it's just, we, we all do that, but when we do it, then what we're doing is we're putting a lot of eggs into the, into the basket of our effort. That somehow, somehow God's kingdom could only be blessed if you have a giant church and a giant program and a giant gym and a giant this and a giant that. And, and, and yet, sometimes what happens even in a larger church is that people will say, if only we were smaller then we would know each other and it would be a whole lot better. We always find excuses. Yeah, we do. And so I would say, if only you would wear your name tags, then we will know each other better. (laughs) We can stay big. Just wear your name tag, okay? I would feel much better about that, especially at communion. Okay. All right, so there's some real special things happening here. Some real special things. And among the special things is, is that the gospel is being shared. But he stays there for two days. You know, John isn't always a big one to put details in the story, but he does that here, and you think, why two days? Yeah, Keith? Oh, wait, jump there. Oh, yeah. Did I miss something? No, I just skipped it, but go ahead. Yeah. Where they realize that he is a savior for the world. Where, now, where are you at? 42. 42. 39. Oh, yeah. Okay. Say more. That, that's, that's the key part of where John's going with this is because John is going to try and take the Bible in a, in a concise one book. Yes. And he's bringing it out by that this is the Savior for the world. Yes. And that's where his key point is to put this whole thing. Yeah, and, and what better living example of it than to go to the town, the very town in the middle of the country where the people that would have been most precluded from being in the world, right, to be saved. I mean, this was like the perfect example of that. And then he stays two days. And, you know, again, John reminds us in his gospel that not everything that Jesus did or said is included in here. There's a lot of stuff that Jesus did and said that isn't included in the Bible or in John. And so wouldn't it have been great to be a fly on the wall? As Jesus is, 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 is sharing himself with them, again, showing highest value. See, the highest value that you could show to somebody, the greatest respect and the greatest sense of, of honor that you could show is to spend time with people and, and to eat with them and to talk with them and to, and to listen to them and argue with them and do all those kinds of things, all that relational stuff. And that's what Jesus did, took, took that kind of time. Okay, so let's go top of page 43 with verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone 
to the feast. So have you heard this sort of proverb? It's a proverb. A, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. Is another way of saying it is familiarity breeds contempt. And so often when that happens, there's two results that can happen. One is, is that people refuse to listen to you because they judge you by your past. And if you have a checkered past, then people will uh, remind you of that. I think of that whenever I go to churches where I grew up. Not that, I mean, I was a pastor's kid, and so um, not that it was all that checkered. I'm also the firstborn, so I was pretty much the rule follower. I said, pretty much. But, you know, when people will say, well, we remember when you were this big, right? And so on the basis of that, they maybe don't listen. And maybe Jesus ran into some of that. Now, you know, think about Jesus. Talk about being the perfect, you know, firstborn and the onlyborn in some sense at, at some point. But what if the other result of that is, is that people listen to you only because you're one of us? Meaning that somebody from the outside who isn't one of us, we're not going to listen to. Well, what Jesus encountered with the Galileans was that they believed because they also had heard of some amazing and wonderful things that Jesus had done. So, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What do you make of the fact that a guy comes to Jesus with a desperate need on, the, on behalf of his son, and Jesus kind of rebuffs the guy, kind of almost in some sense questions whether or not the guy really has faith. Because you notice that he says that, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It's almost as if he's sort of testing the guy to see was he genuine in his faith as well as in his desperation to have Jesus heal his son. Is Jesus being mean? Kind of sounds mean. He's testing the guy's faith, isn't he? And notice what is the guy's response. He's not put off at all by it, is he? No. He says, I really, you, my child is going to die, and I need your help. Sometimes acts of faith are hard to tell the difference between that and acts of desperation. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes desperation will create an opportunity for faith, right, to occur. And what we learn is, is that Jesus says, go and your son will be healed, and we're told the man believed. Now, let's skip down to the next part and see what happens after that. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now, one of the things we want to remember is that Canaan was 20 miles away from where the guy lives. So how long would it take normally for somebody to go 20 miles in a chariot or on a mule or however they did it? Well, it took the pioneers 
a day to go seven miles to go from East Texas to San Antonio in a wagon. This guy is very anxious about his son, and he's a nobleman, so he's got some money. He probably had a chariot or something that would go fast, right? And so he is, he is hauling A to get there. And what happens is his, his servants meet him, and they say, your son is recovering. And so then he asked them, what was the hour that he began to get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He has traveled 20 miles in, one, in two days, right? The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. Now, we already know that he himself believed because he already believed. But then what's the next part say? And all his household. How would his household come to faith? He told them. Yes, he told them. He shares the gospel. And this now is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What do we remember about the word sign in John's gospel? What is that? What does the word sign mean? Pointing to what? The fact that he's the Christ. He's the, real, he's the real Messiah, not fake, not somebody that's just pretending. He's the real thing, and because he is, you and I can trust in him. You and I can trust in the word, and we can believe the word. Good stuff today. Look at that. Wow, we got through a whole lesson today. Yay! And we got through the end of chapter 4. It took forever. But let's all celebrate that. Yes, we'll try to break a new record under chapter 5. All right, let's close with, uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for reminding us that your word speaks into people's hearts. And that when it does that, you yourself are the power behind that. And that power brings new life to people, just as it's brought new life to us. But Lord, sometimes we get all twisted up because we think that we should see an immediate result of that. We, we should see a life totally changed and everything better. And it doesn't always work that way. So help us to have the faith, to continue to live the faith and share the faith and trust that maybe this is one of those deals where we're the ones that sow the word as you sow the word, but then it's way later that someone else is in the position to be reaping the harvest. At the end of the day, Lord, we all end up at heaven and we get to see who's there and be filled with joy about that. So give us opportunity, Lord. Watch over us this week until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. 
that will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.